together at the book of Second Peter. It's just after First Peter. And the Church Bible, that's page 1222. Over the weeks ahead, Mike and I are going to divide this up between us. If the background to 1 Peter was suffering for following Jesus, the background to 2 Peter is false teaching which denies that Jesus is coming back. There were plenty of false teachers around in the early days of the church, just as there are today. And many of the New Testament letters were written to deal with false teaching, to set it right. And the particular brand of false teaching Peter is coming after here is teaching that said, we can live as we like because Christ is not coming back. So there will be no final judgment. We're never going to be held to account. And these teachers seem to have based their argument on the fact that some time had passed since Jesus ascended back into heaven. And they took Jesus' delay in returning to earth as evidence that he wasn't going to return at all. Peter only focuses in on this false teaching in chapter 3, but each of the five or six main sections of the letter refer to Christ's return. It's the background to everything Peter says in this letter. So if we wanted a title for this series, we could call it Jesus is Coming Back. There will be a final judgment. And Peter not only assures us that this is true, he shows us the implications of this truth. It means that we may not live as we like. There's going to be a day of reckoning. And this evening we're going to look at the first 11 verses of this letter. Simon Peter a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world, in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is short-sighted and blind. He has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. 
For if you do these things, you will never fall. And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Most of us here are familiar with instruction manuals. Here's one that I got quite a while ago with a laptop. 156 pages in that one. Here's another one. I got this with Windows, 191 pages. So when, for my last birthday, I got an iPod, I was expecting something similar. After all, an iPod is a pretty powerful little thing. There's lots of things you can do with it. Plenty to explain in a manual. But when my iPod arrived, I got this. That's it. On the front, it says, quick start. Then on the back, it says, for complete instructions, view the manual on Apple's website. So Steve Jobs sent me basic instructions. And he assumed that even for me, this was enough to get me started using my iPod. And just about was. Our passage this evening is the New Testament equivalent of basic instructions for the Christian life. In these 11 verses, we have a summary of the Christian life. Peter sets out our foundation and source, our responsibility, and our reward. Very simple, basic instructions. The rest of the New Testament fleshes out the details, but here... In condensed form, we have the guide we need for the Christian life. First of all, Peter sets out our foundation and source. In Christ, we have everything we need. Peter begins by mentioning the foundation we have for the Christian life. In Christ, we have salvation. Look again at verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Simon Peter is the famous disciple. Along with James and John, Peter made up Jesus' inner circle within the twelve disciples. Jesus poured even more into those three men than he did the other nine. He gave them experiences the other nine didn't have. So, for example, when Jesus went up the mountain for his transfiguration, the only disciples he took were Peter, James, and John. Only those three saw Jesus in his heavenly glory. And now that Jesus has returned to heaven... Peter has the job of being a messenger of the good news about Jesus. He's a man with great privileges. But look what he says to the Christians he's writing to in verse 1. To those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Peter is saying when it comes to salvation, there is no such thing as two-tier Christianity. In terms of salvation, it is not true that people like Peter have special privilege when they stand before Jesus. No, the faith God has given Peter's readers 
is as precious as the faith he gave Peter. Through that faith, Peter's readers stand on level ground with Peter. They have equal status. In Christ, they have been made alive, where once they were spiritually dead. They've been accepted as sons and daughters of God, where once they were enemies of God. They have equal access to the grace and peace that comes through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. There are a couple of words for knowledge in the New Testament. The one that's used here refers to saving knowledge. So it's not just knowledge about Jesus. It's knowledge that moves us from death to life, from darkness to light. This particular knowledge is the foundation of the Christian life. This is where it all starts. It's like pressing the on button on your machine. We come to know Jesus for who he is. The Son of God who died in our place for our salvation. This is page one of our basic instructions. We're not ready to read on until we have this foundation in place. Do we only know about Jesus or do we know him as our Savior? Well, Peter assumes that his readers do have this precious faith in Jesus. So he moves on. In verse 3 he says, In Christ we have power to live a godly life. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. The words life and godliness are to be understood together. So we have been given everything we need for a godly life. Then if we look at the second half of the verse first, Peter says, because God has called us and given us saving knowledge of Jesus, because of that, we are supplied by divine power. That divine power gives us everything we need to live a godly life. That's an amazing promise. No matter how we feel in ourselves, in Christ, we're given power to live a life that obeys God's commands and honors God and begins to mirror God's holiness. And in verse 4, Peter says, in Christ we have the promise of progress. He says, through these, that's through God's glory and goodness, through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. The first half of verse 4 tells us we have been given promises. The second half of the verse tells us what these promises are. first one is that you may participate in the divine nature. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that we become God. We don't become divine. Jesus is like us because he's a man. He is unlike us because he's also God. You and I are never going to take on that divinity that Jesus has and that God the Father has and the Spirit has. So then what does this mean? It means we become like God. And some people have suggested we become like God by becoming immortal. 
But I think it's more likely Peter is saying we become like God by taking on his character, his love for what is good, his hatred for what is evil. Our broken, sinful human nature begins to be conformed to God's holy, perfect nature. We begin to participate in the divine nature. It might help to think about a family where there's one child born physically from their parents and another child who's been adopted. Now, in a loving family, both children will be fully part of the family. They'll both belong fully. Only one shares in the essence of the parents, their blood and their DNA. But as the adopted child comes under the care and instruction of the parents, that child will begin to be like them. That child will never share the same physical essence of the parents. His or her body is never going to be made up of blood and cells from the parents. But that adopted child will begin to be like them. To see the world the way the parents do. To think and react the way the parents do. Now, obviously, that's not a perfect illustration. Children, children can be very different from their parents. But it is a little bit like our situation as children of God. Jesus is the Son of God. The New Testament tells us that when we come to Jesus, God adopts us as sons and daughters. We are adopted brothers and sisters of Jesus. That's how Jesus himself explained it. We're never going to share Jesus' divinity. There will always be a distinction between us as humans and God as God. That distinction will last for all of eternity. But once we've been adopted into the family of God, we will begin to take on the characteristics of our Father in heaven. We will begin to be holy as he is holy. And we will grow in that. That's true. When it comes to being like God, we're never going to be the finished article in this life. But we will make progress in this life. That's a very great and precious promise Jesus has given us. And then connected to this in the rest of verse 4, we will escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. I think this is just the other side of the coin. So we have Jesus' promise that we will grow more like God, and we also have his promise that we will grow less like this corrupted, unholy world. Corruption that's caused by the evil desires that reign in men and women's hearts. As God works in us to make us more like himself, he is at the same time shaking us loose from our likeness to the world around us. And as he does that, we'll have less of a taste for sin in all its different forms. We will think and behave less and less like the world around us thinks and behaves. Our priorities will look less and less like the world around us. These are two very great and precious promises Jesus has given us. We will grow more like God and less like this world. And let's be clear, this is not a promise that from the day we come to Jesus... 
Our life will be one unbroken march of daily growth and holiness, daily victory over sin. No, all of us know it doesn't work like that. What we are promised is that the course of our lives will be toward holiness and away from sinfulness. If we could plot this on a graph, we're not going to get a straight line. There would be lots of wiggles in the line. There would be places where the graph leveled off for a bit. But the overall trajectory of the graph would show upward progress. Every Christian goes through days and months of defeat and stagnation in their Christian lives. But when God saves us in Christ, he not only provides power to live a godly life, he also gives us the promise of progress. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul says the same thing. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God's transforming work in us begins when we come to Christ. It will be completed when we finally see Christ face to face. The Apostle John says, when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. But until that day, we have the promise of progress. And this is so important for us because it tells us the Christian life is a work in progress. It's a process. Very often, though, we don't think of it that way. We think of it in terms of a start point and an end point. We look back to a crisis point in our lives when we recognized our sin and we trusted Christ. And then we look forward to the day when Christ returns. And we need to keep those things in mind. Peter will get to that. But the danger is that we see all the years in between as just treading water. We trust Jesus for salvation. We get our heavenly passport stamped and approved. And then we sit around waiting for Jesus to come and get us. But God has given us the great and precious promise of progress as Christians. This life is not about treading water. It's about growing towards the person we will be when Christ returns. And so as he goes on, Peter presses us here. Having said that it's God's work, in Christ we have everything we need. Now Peter talks secondly about our responsibility. We must put what we have to work. Yes, the Christian life is about what God does for us and in us. The Christian life is not about us pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. Salvation is a gift from God. Our power for living the Christian life comes from God. But God has not called us to be passive. He's not called us to be like driftwood floating along in the water, carried along by the current. No, God has given us responsibility. We must put what we have to work. Look what Peter says in verse 5. For this very reason, in other words, because of all that God has given you, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, 
and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. We might be tempted to think, if God has given me everything, then there's nothing I can do. But Peter has a different perspective. He says, because God gives you power, because he promises you progress, you can pursue progress with enthusiasm. You can be confident you will make progress. If it was all down to our strength and ability, well, yes, we may as well give up. If we're expected to make progress in all of this by our own power, then it's just a lost cause. But the Christian life is not like that. We make every effort to grow in godliness, knowing that God has promised us progress. That should spur us on in our effort. In fact, Peter will go on to say that if we have no desire to make every effort, then we may not be Christians at all. But first, let's look at this list of things we're to pursue. Back in verse 1, Peter said, God has given us saving faith. Now we're to put that faith to work. We're to pursue a life that's growing in all these things. As we look at this list in verses 5 to 7, there are a couple of mistakes we could make about it. One mistake would be to see it as a chain. So we start off with faith, then we pursue goodness, and once we get goodness, then we can set our sights on knowledge and so on. Now it is true that all these virtues are connected. But this is not a chain where we have to achieve one thing before we move on and aim for the next one. Another mistake we could make is to say, well, there's a lot here. I'll just pick one or two and those will be my targets. So I'll try to be a self-controlled person. That's enough for me to be getting on with. I don't have time to worry about the other things. But it doesn't work that way either. This is not a list for us to pick from. These are all interconnected. Growth in one goes along with growth in another. Hopefully none of us would say, well, when it comes to sin, I'm going to pick one or two sins to fight against. I'll not worry about all the others. No, we realize that we're called to fight all sin in our lives. And equally, we're called to pursue all virtues in our lives. And again, if this was something that we had to do in our own strength, where would we even begin? But God has promised us the power we need. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. We'll just look in detail at some of the virtues that are mentioned here. In verse 5, after goodness, Peter mentions knowledge. And here he isn't talking about saving knowledge of Jesus. Here he means the kind of knowledge that starts in the head and then works its way out in wisdom and practical action. Some Christians love to study. They know the Bible well. They read theological books. But their knowledge never really makes any difference in their lives. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that kind of knowledge just puffs up. The only thing it achieves is a big head for the person who has it. 
It's a kind of stillborn knowledge. It never produces anything in terms of a more godly life. That is not what Peter has in mind here. This is knowledge that starts with study. We can't get away from our responsibility with that. We have to be feeding our minds with God's word, with good Christian books. And then we have to work that knowledge out in our lives. The more we read and study, the more our decisions and our actions should show godly wisdom and purity. Now, I understand that some of us love the call to study. We're just made that way. Some of us hate it. Focusing our minds to study is not something we enjoy at all. But we're still called to do it. We've already said this list is not here for us to pick from. The call to grow in knowledge is not for those who find study appealing. It's for all of us. Just like goodness is not just for those with a pleasant personality. It's for all of us too. So I would challenge you, if you've been excusing yourself because studying just isn't your thing, then you need a change of attitude. If you're a Christian, it has to be your thing. C.S. Lewis said, God is no fonder of intellectual slackers than of any other slackers. In other words, refusing to use your brain for God is just as bad as refusing to use your lips or your hands for God. He gave us our brains to be used for his glory, not to lie unused in the back of our heads. Of course, all of us have different capacities. For some of us, reading a booklet takes as much effort as a big volume might take for somebody else. And that's okay. We're not called to compare ourselves with what other people can do. We're called to make every effort according to the ability that we have. So I would encourage you to set yourself some goals. If you've never read the whole Bible before, then aim to do it in the next one or two years. Figure out a time and a place where you can read a little bit four or five times a week. Try to read two or three good Christian books a year. And then pray that God will help you work out what you learn, to put your knowledge into practice. The next item on the list is self-control. And maybe we immediately think of controlling our temper or our sexual appetites. But this applies to every appetite we have. John Piper gives this list of areas for self-control. Television, alcohol, coffee, golf, computer games, fishing, good food. It's quite a variety. There are any number of things that can enslave us. Some of them have very obvious destructive consequences, like enslavement to alcohol. Other things have less obvious consequences, Enslavement to coffee. But we're not to be enslaved by anything, even if it's a good thing by itself. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I will not be mastered by anything. Why? 
because he has been bought at a price, the price of Jesus' blood. He's not going to serve any other master. So if we can't miss a football game, if we can't do without our coffee or our cell phone or the internet, then we need to think about the call to self-control. Maybe some of us need to think about our shopping habits. People talk about retail therapy. Are we enslaved by the endorphin rush we get from going out and buying something? Or what about our tongues? Are we working to get control of our tongues rather than lashing out and gossiping with our tongues? The book of James says the tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So are we making every effort to control it through the divine power that God gives us? What about our food intake? Do we have self-control in that area? Self-control is a very big area. And we're to make every effort to be self-controlled in all areas, not just the areas that we personally find easy. Perseverance. Some of us start lots of things, but we hardly ever finish anything. And assuming the thing we start is good, We are called to perseverance. Maybe for you that means persevering through difficulties in a marriage. Maybe it's persevering with a trying relationship. Maybe you've made a commitment to work on something with your spouse. Or maybe it's some aspect of the self-control we've just been talking about. Or maybe it's persevering and putting God before golf or whatever it is. Maybe it's a goal you've set yourself to grow in knowledge, reading a particular book. We're called to perseverance. We're not to abandon our commitments the day they get hard. God doesn't operate that way. God is faithful to his commitments, and we are to be like him. Brotherly kindness means kindness to brothers and sisters in Christ. Is there someone in the church you have an aversion to? Are you bearing a grudge against anyone here? Grudges that aren't dealt with are like cancer. We must pursue brotherly kindness. We're to persevere in brotherly kindness. Maybe by now you can see how these virtues are all interconnected. Sometimes it's hard to see where one of them ends and another one begins. We could spend time looking at all of these items. I've tried to pick out the more easily misunderstood ones. But it's worth taking time later to ask yourself, how would each of these work out in my life? How can I pursue each of these in my life? Ask God to guide you as you think about that. And why not look at this list again in six months' time? Ask yourself, are there areas where there has been growth in my my life? How can I continue to pursue growth? After his list, Peter says in verse 8, 
For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we have the idea that the Christian life is a process. Often we want the easy way. We want God to just zap us with godliness. So maybe we hope that one day we'll arrive at a church meeting as a normal Christian and we'll have some spectacular experience in that meeting and we'll go home different. From then on, we'll be a victorious Christian, above sin. Sometimes this idea has been called the second blessing. I knew a lady who had two dates written in the front of her Bible. Beside one date was the word saved. Beside a different date was the word sanctified. That's the idea that there's some second experience we can have that sorts out the struggles we have as Christians. When we have that experience, we cross over from being normal Christians to being godly Christians. But we don't find that idea in the New Testament. The New Testament describes growth and godliness as a process. And here Peter is calling us to possess these qualities in increasing measure. Elsewhere, Paul writes to Timothy, let all see your progress. So we're not to chase after some experience that will take away the need to make every effort in the Christian life. Aside from the fact that God hasn't promised us that kind of experience, chasing after it is just a distraction from the day-to-day life that we're called to. A daily life of pursuing growth and progress in godliness. Look at verse 9. But if anyone does not have them, that's the virtues that Peter has listed, he is short-sighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, the God of this age, that's the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel. The implication behind Paul's words is, in order for us to receive the gospel, God has to open our eyes. And here Peter says, if your life shows no progress in godliness... If there are no signs that you're leaving the corruption of this world behind, then we have to ask, have your eyes really been opened? Have you really seen the light of the gospel? Have you really experienced forgiveness of sins? Surely if you had, you would be pursuing godliness. You would be working to forsake sin not happy to continue in sin. If our lives show no evidence of the fruit of the gospel, have we ever really embraced the gospel? That's Peter's point. Jesus said, by their fruit you shall know them, not by the prayer they prayed 30 years ago you shall know them. If we have received everything we need in Christ, then we will put what we have to work. 
Peter closes this opening section of his letter by pointing to our reward, a welcome into Christ's eternal kingdom. Verse 10, Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Make your calling and election sure. If God has elected you for salvation in eternity past, if he has called you to Christ in this life, if you've been adopted into God's family, then you will begin to take on the family characteristics. You will pursue godliness. You will want to be like your heavenly father. You will want to leave corruption behind. But if you're not taking the Christian life seriously, then do you have grounds to be confident that God has elected you and called you? Let's be very clear on what's being said here. Peter is not saying that pursuing a life of virtue gets us into heaven. He is saying that if God is taking us to heaven, we will pursue a life of virtue. So we must never think that salvation and good works have nothing to do with one another. They do. The problem is that we often misunderstand the order of things. Many people think that good works lead to salvation. But the New Testament says salvation leads to the good works. It's crucial that we get it the right way around. But we do need to understand that salvation and good works are connected. Salvation will always produce good works. One of the most famous passages on salvation and good works is Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says, It is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul is very clear. Salvation leads to good works. The order is crucial. And so is the connection between salvation and good works. They belong together. So here at the end of our passage, Peter says, examine your life. If there are no good works, can you be confident of your calling and election by God? On the other hand, if there is some progress over time, however weak it is and stumbling it is, even if it's progress that only other people can see in you, that's a sign that God is at work in you. That's reason for confidence that when judgment day comes, you won't fall. The fruit in your life is evidence that God has saved you. He is working in you. And he will give you a rich welcome into the the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In these 11 verses, we have basic instructions for the Christian life. The foundation and source is Christ. 
Our responsibility is to put what Christ gives us to work. And the reward promised us is a welcome into Christ's eternal kingdom. We're going to respond together to God's word as we sing, O great God of highest heaven.